Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Ricky, who lost his job on a Friday, went out for pizza with his daughter on the Saturday, then had a night out with his girlfriend, and came home and had a stroke. I think, as, as most people do, I'd had a real, very present fear of death. But at the moment that all this was happening, I felt very calm. For this short period before I lost consciousness, I was trying to just sort of monitor what was going on with my body because I I had this this woman with me whom I loved, who's very beautiful that I want to continue to spend time with, but is also super smart. So I kind of felt if I could convey any information to her, you know, she she might be able to, to help me as well. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On this episode, Ricky tells me about the stroke he had at 38 and the trauma that followed, but also how it might well have been the best thing that ever happened to him. Ricky, can you tell me about the day you had your stroke? Can you set that scene for me? Yeah, happily. Um, as they always say, it was, a, it was an ordinary day, except it wasn't entirely... Um, it was actually the day after I'd lost my job. I was uh, I was working as a quote unquote high powered financial lawyer in Manhattan, and uh, we were it was it was in a field called um, securitization, which was arguably responsible for the whole financial meltdown that we had back around twenty ten. Okay, I won't hold that against you, Ricky. <laughs> That's one stroke off the list. Um, mm-hmm. So my job had been under a shadow by that time for for a couple of years, and uh, I'd, I'd finally managed to see myself ushered to the door. So that was Friday. Friday was my last day at work, and on Saturday, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I uh, were taking my my daughter to the New York Hall of Science mm-hmm. out in Queens. So we we'd, we'd had a lovely day. They had all sorts of fun exhibits there. One guy had actually had us all have a go at uh, a zombie detector machine. Mm-hmm. He he asks you a number of questions, uh, and then the, a screen attached to the machine declares you to be zombie or human. And uh, Beth, my girlfriend, and, and, and my daughter both passed with flying human colors. Mm-hmm. I was a member of The Walking Dead, at which point I should probably have been thinking to myself, there's something in the post here. Mm. But we, we, we dropped, my, we dropped my, uh, my daughter off with her, with her mother, and uh, Beth and I spent a, a lovely day together. Uh, you know, glass of wine here, a uh, very nice pizza somewhere else, uh, and so on and so mm. forth. A good New York day. Yeah, the, the perfect New York day, actually. It was, it, was, it was really lovely. It was like something out of a song almost. And with it being a perfect New York day, you may remember from our prior meetings, Bill, that uh, one of the first things you asked us about um, what happened, Beth asked, I think, if you were familiar with the term horizontal dancing or horizontal jogging. Mm, Uh, Yes, that's it. And I didn't quite get what she was saying straight away. Yeah, well, in in my book, I describe it as um, vigorous nighttime activity. Mm. Uh, Basically, we were in the throes of passion, I think we can probably say Mm -hmm. in a podcast. And And that's um, when the stroke happened. Yeah, and of course, at the time, I wasn't particularly sure of of what was going on. I was was, was a bit breathless. A bit preoccupied. 
you know, not terribly unusual in the in the circumstances, mm. but then I started to feel um, a tingling in my left arm, and at the back of my mind, I was recalling that my father had uh, suffered a couple of heart attacks back in the day. Mm. So that was kind of where my mind very quickly went because this was towards the left side and I suppose I'd always had a concern about this sort of thing and I had a history of high blood pressure. Okay. Is this, um, may I ask, post the act or during the act? This is, this is during the act. Okay. But, you know, despite that, I managed to uh, sort of convince myself that it might be a good idea to uh, stop and have a glass of water mm. uh, in the hope, almost the expectation, that you know this would this would just pass, hmm. and then the next thing which I I've told this story a number of times. So the, next, the next thing that I feel like I can remember was trying to hold on to consciousness because of that sort of popular culture fear that if you lose consciousness, it's going to be a lot harder to come back. What does that feel like? You know, I'd always uh, until this point, um, I'd always had a real. I think, as, as most people do, I'd had a real, very present um, fear of death. But at the moment that all this was happening, I felt very calm. I was sort of just trying to sort of monitor, for this short period before I lost consciousness, I was trying to just sort of monitor what was going on with my body. Because I, I had this, this woman with me, whom I loved, who's very beautiful, that I want to continue to spend time with, but is also super smart. So I kind of felt if I could convey any information to her, you know, she she might be able to to help me as well. And as and I think that the last thing I said to her before I lose con- lost consciousness was, um, "Don't worry, everything's going to be fine." Mm. Famous last words. <laughs> Not quite, thankfully. Mm. Um, and how did she respond in that moment? Uh, I mean, w- w- within a few seconds, I apparently had lost consciousness and, uh, and, and vomited. So she was on the she was on the phone to nine one one, as it was, of course, in the states, very quickly. And we were fortunate in that just a handful of blocks down the road was a, a major Brooklyn teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. So the ambulance was there in in no time, and that's kind of where the where the beginning ends and the, and the rest of the story starts. Mm. So you're whisked away to the hospital and you spend seven weeks in that hospital. Hurricane Sandy, you told me, hits New York and yeah. uh, damages, I understand, part of that hospital and the lights go out <laughs> Yeah, as, as you're trying to keep your lights on. Yeah, exactly. Um, partly up and down the city, you know, newborn babies were being carried up and down stairs because, you know, the elevators had all, or the lift uh, had, had, had all cut out. The traffic lights in the streets were all down. Apparently there was a massive popping noise that could be heard through the city as an electricity substation on the banks of, I think, the East River mm. sort of cut out. It was, it was, it was terrible. Um, and it was terrible, of course, in our hospital because... Um, you know, we were we were working on backup power generation. So yes, as you say, the lights went out for a couple of days. It made it very hard for us to receive visitors. Mm. Um, were you conscious during that? Yeah, and it was a, it was a, yeah because um, as you say, it was it was seven weeks I was in hospital. The first 
three and a half weeks, I was in ICU after having um, had a double trepanation. I'd had two holes drilled in my head to release the pressure mm. that had been building up from um, from the blood gathering pursuant to this hemorrhagic stroke. So yeah, I've, for those first three and a half weeks, I was I was not very present. So I, and and then when the hurricane hit, I was conscious and and you know everything was quite was literally quite dark um as well as as well as well as metaphorically of course mm. but i i was conscious i was i was communicating um, i had um the sort of the post stroke emotional i think one term they used is lability you know i i i i was i was quite emotional a lot of the time mm. and sometimes that was you know uh sadness and fear and um Quite a lot of the time, it was like, it was anger. I was I was apparently I was raging about the food hmm. all the time, and then it took a couple of days maybe for everything in New York to begin to start getting back to normal, and then eventually they were able to get back onto the the power grid properly, and the the hospital sort of um, sprang back into a more hmm. normal life. And that's the point at which the lights kind of came back on for me, rather mm. poetically. You know, as, as a writer, that was a, that was very mm. fortunate. And you're getting um, you're getting angry with about the food and, and emotional. You've also told me that you demanded ice from a doctor. <laughs> yeah, that, that that sounds right. I mean, I was I, I was to, to to a great degree, I suppose. I was in my I was in my own world. You mm. know the. Um, the elasticity of the brain was making some some weird connections. Uh, there was one time I was asking, um, yeah, presumably a, a doctor or you know some massively qualified surgeon to to bring me something or other, mm. and uh, the doctor said, "Who do you think you are?" And I said, "Damn it, I'm the vice president, man." Um, which I think got me the ice. So you know that's that's a, 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 a you know I guess. Uh, Kamala Harris gets what she wants when she asks for it. Did you um, think you were in a whiskey bar? <laughs> given, given, given my lifestyle at that point, that's it. That's entirely possible. Yes. Mm. Yeah. You were uh, burning the candle in New York. Very much so. Yeah, it was. Um, as I said, I, I, I had this family history of um, high blood pressure, heart disease, and so on and so forth, and I'd gotten myself into a position whereby I was working this very high-powered job, which, as I've alluded to, uh, was under a lot of pressure at that point, given, you know, the, the state of the financial world and all that sort of thing. I mean, mm. you know, gilded cage. I can't, I can't complain at all. Mm. I, was, I was very fortunate. But the, I suppose what I'm, what I'm driving at here is I'd spent the previous X number of years, a decade and more, burning the nut oil. Mm. In a very sort of uh, in a very intense sort of way, a couple of all night work sessions in a week would be far from unusual. Mm. Um, if you're coming up to a closing, you'd have uh, maybe three or four of those in a row. Uh, and of course, on the days when that didn't happen, uh, I was I was desperate to to reclaim my life. So I'd still be pulling late nights on the nights I didn't have to because hey, my man, that's my time. Mm. So you've got the confluence or the convergence of the you know the, the history of family ill health, the the overwork, and then the fact that taking care of myself kind of you know came a poor second, third, fourth, fifth 
mm. in terms of my uh, my considerations of, of what I should be doing. So, for example, I stopped with my uh, my high blood pressure meds. So, mm. have doctors said that um, going off those meds may have contributed to your stroke? It's it's it's. I don't think anyone's ever necessarily said that expressly to me. Mm. It was a combination of factors, but it was, but, it, but it, I mean that very clearly, very clearly were connected. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I, I've I've certainly been told to you know maintain my regimen. They, they had a great they had great difficulty getting the blood pressure under control after the event of the stroke happened. Mm. When I was uh, wheeled into the hospital, um, my blood pressure was just off the charts. It was I forget what a high blood pressure is, but let's let's say. My blood pressure, yeah, it's going by to me. It was roughly three hundred and something over two hundred and something. Mm, a bit high. Yeah, you know, on a bad day enough to kill two guys, mm. right? Um, so yeah, being off the regimen, I think undoubtedly contributed to to what had happened. Mm. Take me back to those seven weeks in hospital. Mm. Um, I understand that. Some friends of yours and uh, your then girlfriend Beth. Um, some friends would come in and leave little notes by your bedside table. Oh yes, yes, that was th- that, that was a really nice thing actually. Um, in fact, I've still got I've still got them around uh, here in the house. Uh, Beth started writing post-it notes or writing on post-it notes and leaving them by uh, you know stuck to my bed, and it'd be it would be, it would be nice stuff, you know, like. Um, I love you and all that sort of thing, and um, or, or just or just even jokey little remarks, because one of the hardest things was when she wasn't there, or if there wasn't a friend there, it would be very hard for me to know what was going on or or have something to hold on to, you know. Mm. So she started writing these these notes, and then she would start encouraging our friends to do the same thing. So you know, I had I had this little note from my daughter saying you're the best daddy ever and uh, mm. and all that sort of stuff. So that was that, that was really helpful having those there when there was no one around. Mm. There was I was reading a review um, one of your book, which which we'll talk about later. But um, yeah. in this uh, review online, I think one of your friends left a note saying, "Better than dead." <laughs> yes, yes, that 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 was that was a, a, indeed one of them, and um, and and having that sort of stuff and that sort of um, that sort of playfulness and, and, and that lightheartedness, mm, a bit was, of dark humour. Well, yeah, it, it was really important because um, you know those are those are really dark times. Mm. You know, it, it, when, at night when you're in the hospital and you don't really have. In fact, at one point. Somebody came up to the bed, a member of the medical staff, I think, and they were doing the usual sort of mental checks, if you will, asking asking all the obvious questions, you know, what's your name, do you know where you are, and all that sort of stuff. And um, I did not have a great time uh, with those questions because they would ask me, you know, how old are you? And my my stroke had happened two weeks after my birthday. My brain hadn't really had a chance to to absorb my new age. Mm. You just turned thirty eight after my stroke. I, I just turned thirty eight, mm. so they would ask how old I was, and I would say I was thirty seven. And they would ask when the stroke happened, and it, it had happened on the night of September the thirtieth, October the first. So I was really bad at knowing what 
month. Uh, the stroke of time. So I couldn't get my age right. I couldn't get the I couldn't get the month right. And uh, yeah, I was a I was a mess. Mm. Another uh, note that I think I read in one of your um, book reviews, a friend uh, said that the stroke induced weight loss program has been a raging success. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I just, uh, I just, um, I should probably think, I should probably think royalties to my friends who are like really funny. Mm. But yes, that that was that was that was that was clearly a thing as well. Because um, you'd been trying to lose some weight, and then the stroke comes, and you've uh, shed the pounds pretty quick. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could. I wish I could say I had been trying to lose it, but uh, you know, there there had been a lot of the. Uh, the meals at the desk mm. and uh, a lack of exercise mm. and all that sort of stuff. And uh, the weight loss was, um, you know, pretty extreme because, um, of course, there's that period, there was that period at the end where uh, the medical staff are very concerned about swallowing abilities and um, aspiration of foods and liquids and all that sort of stuff. So uh, a lot of the early food was, was very soft, mm. um, you know, like – uh, when you take a slice of bread and you put it in a blender with with water, and then they they reform it into a square, mm. um, you know, hence my food induced rage. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the really shocking parts of the experience for me was um, taking a shower and, and seeing my reflection, and my my. It looked like my bum had just fallen off. Hmm. You know, the, like the back of me was just a straight line running from my from my back to my to my legs. It hmm. was, uh, yeah, it was quite something. And um, uh, before we move on from the funny notes, you, you can see that I like mm. these funny notes. The um, <laughs> the other one that I read said something to the effect of, "At least Ricky, you'll have an excuse now when you forget to wear pants." <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd worked on all sorts of levels because um, I was I was talking to a friend one day about having to have some 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 pants brought in, and he had to confirm whether or not I was talking about the funny kind mm. because uh, you know American English, British English, we have the whole uh, pants confusion. Mm. So yeah, and 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 there were definitely and there were parts of my mind that had sort of. Um, retreated to the Scotland of my youth and all that sort of thing. So um, mm. all sorts of, all sorts of, um, that's a funny thing. You know, the the the, the 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 funny notes that people were leaving and all that sort of stuff. It turns out that, and I, I don't want, I, I don't want to play down the gravity of any of this, but a thing that I did find and that I have found talking to other stroke survivors and their loved ones is that there is, as you see, a dark, but absurd humour. There is just so much ridiculousness, mm. and um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to come out of the other side of this and see that these sort of this this dark humour, this absurd humour, was a, a huge help in sort of uh, getting through mm. uh, a lot of this. Because otherwise, it just is, of course, you know, unremittingly hard. Mm. So uh, yeah, the, a little bit of um, a little bit of that sort of thing goes a long way. Mm. Also in hospital. I understand there were some moments that were quite painful and traumatic from the little bit of reading I've done online about your book. There was an incident with a catheter. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, so there are various um, types of um, you know, catheter that they can, that they can use. Um, I think mm. one of them is called um, a Texas catheter, which is based, or, or what, what we also call a, a condom catheter. 
Mm. And that's, you know, that's, that's not so bad. But um, what they had me set up with was something that actually sort of fed inside my tube. So tube was run up my tube, if you will. Mm. Uh, and then when it gets inside, um, there's a little uh, almost small balloon on the end of it, which keeps it in place. It basically inflates inside your bladder. Mm-hmm. And you know if you're in a, and if you're in a sufficiently uh, depleted state, it just sort of uh, sits there and uh, and you drain out uh, as you need to. I should just say, Ricky, I've been taking a breath in about thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. Someone else who reviewed the book and was quite uh, horrified by this whole section. Mm. It really is like something out of Alien. It is. Um, it makes one wince. <laughs> do, do continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. You, know, you, you might want to. Uh, you might want to close your ears and assume that things are recording for a few mm-hmm. moments. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and um, you know, there's, there are tubes everywhere. Of course, there are tubes coming out of my head to um, drain out the dirty brain fluid. There's a there's a there's a tube uh, in my mouth. There's a there, there, there's one on the back of my hand, sort of giving me you know the whatever drugs that I need at any particular given time, and. Um, you know, there's there's one coming out of my junk, if you will, and I had no idea of what was going on, so I just started trying to pull this thing out. Hmm. And if you try and pull a plastic tube that's got an inflated balloon on the end of it out of your bladder through your penis, that can have very negative effects. Not um, advisable. Not advisable. So that was the point at which they put me on twenty four hour watch. Mm. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Ricky. <laughs> Um, are you okay? Uh, yeah, yeah. Everything no, okay? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm more concerned for you right now, honestly. Is everything okay now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, everything, yes, yes. The, the, the balloon is out. Okay. So that, that's a relief. Okay, well, we'll, um, we'll dig ourselves out of those weeds for a second. Yeah, and, moving swiftly um, on. You also ripped an arterial line um, mm. out of your arm yeah. after having hallucinations that mosquitoes were attacking your wrists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I was finding myself to be quite sweaty a lot of the time. And uh, and also, you know, the, the, the arterial line uh, had been in for, a, you know, a certain amount of time at that point. And um, I felt an itchiness. So I, I got it in, my, in my, my head. I don't know if this was in my capacity as vice president or as my capacity as Ricky or as you know some other third person um, but I got into my mind that um, I was I'd been receiving mosquito bites and I, I now must clearly have uh, malaria mm-hmm. and that the way to to address this was to was was to pull out the line mm. it's a rational response it's the best I could have done at the time mm. so yeah so you know I suppose it was between that and the catheter they, mm. they decided they had to have a nurse sitting with me uh, through the night every night yes and uh, should just say speaking of nurses when this podcast goes through uh, the British Heart Foundation medical sign off um, we should we should advise <laughs> that people should not have strokes in order to lose weight and they should not try and pull a catheter from their penis and they should not try and pull um, a drip from their wrist. Yeah, all of these things. Um, we can, we can. Again, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but th- there are positives to the story. But yes, that, that that's for later on. So you recover as well as you can in that New York hospital, and mm. then a little while later, your girlfriend Beth loses her job, 
and there you are, um, both in one of the most expensive cities in the world without a job, and you guys decide to come back to your home of Edinburgh. Yeah, well, one of the one of the one of the shocking parts of 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 the story was that at one point we got to see the retail cost of keeping me alive for those seven weeks, mm. which was something in the region of six hundred thousand dollars. We did have insurance, and we continued to have insurance after I lost my job i think we i think we sat with my insurance for a while because it was a particularly good one given the position i'd held but they have some they have a a program there whereby if you pay a certain amount you can continue to maintain the private insurance that you held with your employer so we we had done that so i i got i got incredible care mm. but we were now reaching the point where neither of us had jobs and the the bills to maintain this insurance, which of course at this point we're perceiving to be quite important, uh, were building up. There was really going to be no way for us to, you know, maintain an apartment in Brooklyn, pay for health insurance, and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and I think, well, I don't really, I, don't, I can't really say for sure what my intention was before this regarding moving back to Scotland because I'd, I'd, I'd been in the States by this point for about 15 years. Mm. Beth, her her birthday is uh, Robert Burns' night. Oh. Uh, and I, her, her first boyfriend happened to be Scottish. Okay. Um, she's American though. She's American. Mm. Yeah, she's American. But I think she was, uh, you know, I, she, she was, she's actually, she was quite happy to, to give this a go. I was very, I was very fortunate okay. in, that, in that regard. Yeah. So, um, we we were somewhat forced into the decision to uh, to move to Scotland because really we were absolutely at sea and it was one of those times where the only people you have to fall back on. I mean, our friends were brilliant, but you know we were we were in such dire straits. You only really fall back on family, mm. and um, it was I suppose it was it was either Edinburgh or um, the the very beautiful um, Greenville, South Carolina, mm -hmm. but. Uh, but Beth's a Rhode Islander, so she didn't. She was. She's a Northerner. She's a. She's a Yankee. Okay. You know, so she didn't. She didn't want necessarily to move back down to the south. Right. I understand. So she um, and you land back in Edinburgh and mm. start again, um, really. And you discover yeah. Ricky that you have stories to tell, and you set out on writing a book. Yeah. Um, you know, quite quickly it uh, became apparent to me. I think that. Um, there was a story to be told about the things that had been happening to me. Um, you know, the, the, this this absurd humour that I talk about was a was a big part of it, I think. And in fact, one of the things that I'd done to pass a bit of the time after I went back home was I I, I joined a little writing group in Brooklyn. So I sort of started playing with the idea a little bit. Beth actually asked me one time, you know, when was it that you realized you're a writer and I said to her I think it was when I was you know 14 15 but then I forgot hmm. you know like 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 so much in life other things get in the way and you, you just you just move from day to day uh, but now I had this story that had fallen into my lap and uh, I felt I had to I had to do something with it hmm. particularly since even at this stage you know we've moved to Edinburgh and we are we're building up from the bottom again but um, it still seemed like there 
were positive aspects to this story that I hoped might be encouraging to other people mm. who were going through the same thing. Such as? The fact that one of the notes, getting back to the post-it notes, one of the, one of the notes had something written on it that um, Beth had been told by one of my nurses, which was you know, when she was at her lowest point and didn't even know Firstly, if I'd make any sort of recovery, but even if I even if I did, would I be would I be the same person? You know, would I, would I be the person that you know she she'd fallen in love with? And this nurse said to her, "Remember, this is not permanent." And I think that was a really important lesson to learn, and being able to sort of convey the fact that everything everything continues to change. And I was and, and I was very lucky in the way my river flowed. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a certain amount of maybe hope and optimism mm. to be taken from that. Another sort of lovely moment that kind of knits in with that a little bit is, you know, we had various therapists looking after us in the hospital. You know, you've got your physical therapist, you've got your occupational therapist. We also had a recreational therapist. Mm. And one day you know, she got to chatting to me about my interests and all that sort of stuff. And she asked if I would be interested in her bringing to me a set of guided meditation CDs. Mm-hmm. And that's actually come to be a thing that's, um, that's been very useful to me because one of the symptoms of a, a common symptom of a stroke is, uh, of course, perseveration. This idea that you get a thought into your mind and you just can't kick it. Mm. Or, even, or even a physical, a physical gesture or movement. And you keep on repeating that as well. Mm, you just can't shake it loose. Exactly. And taking up a sort of meditation and mindfulness practice uh, turned out to be a, a great tool for me to mm. be able to move beyond that a lot of the times. You know, when you're having the dark thoughts, it's a little bit easier to let them go when you've had a chance to exercise that muscle. Mm. Um, so you know, that's, that's another thing I, I mm. always like to, to pass on that was helpful for me at least. And this book that you wrote called Stroke, A 5% Chance of Survival, which is yeah. what you were given, has been described as a tragic comedy. <laughs> Will you accept yeah. that label? Absolutely. That's mm. what we're going for. Yeah. Yep. And you also, in many ways, dedicate it to your now wife, Beth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it's funny. I'm the, um, I'm the, I'm the protagonist if you will, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the event that changes everyone's lives happens to me. But in a way, I, I'm not the hero. She's the hero. And I think that's, that, and I think that's a really, really common case. And it's, um, I think it's really important for um, stroke survivors and their loved ones to sort of remember that side of the equation. It's, um, it's obviously, a stroke is obviously a shattering event for the person that happens to. But it's also a shattering event uh, for the people who are closest to them. And they don't necessarily have some of the help and they don't have the, the, the same types of help and support a lot of the times when they're going through this that the, the stroke patient has. I, for example, was in a in a position where all of my immediate needs were being taken care of you know i had like from the most basic things i wasn't gonna have to worry about shelter anytime soon 
I was getting, you know, three hideous meals plus snacks a day. You know, I, I didn't even have to shower myself. There was someone taking care of that as well. Mm. Um, whereas Beth and the loved ones of, of other uh, stroke survivors, they're going through this terrible time and also having to take care of all of that stuff themselves and go to their jobs or look for jobs and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really you know, one I think a really important thing is um, for the people in that position to, to understand what they're going through as well and, and really take care of themselves. I mean, obviously, it's really important, obviously, that their, their supporters help them. Mm. Well, I think one of the, I think one sort of thing that's really worth passing on is um, people would often say to me, you know, how are you doing? Is there anything, anything I can do for you? And that's lovely, and it's and it's expressing care, but it's not a terribly helpful question. Is there anything I can do? Isn't a helpful question. Can I bring you some meals? Is a helpful question. Can I take your laundry in? Because the person who's who's caring for the the stroke victim, the stroke survivor, doesn't have the bandwidth to think about what you can do for them, and they're not necessarily inclined to want to impose on you because you know. The, there's so much stuff going on whereas if you can come to me and say is there something concrete i can do for you mm. and give that example that's that's a huge and beautiful thing you can do for a person mm. also in one of these articles online about your book i've yeah. seen that you've described your wife beth as my muse my patron the love of my life yeah i mean 100 percent true what she what she went through um, and, and continued to go through was in its own way, in a different way, I suppose, um, as devastating as as what happened to me. I mean, first of all, you've got you've got the event itself, which is you know, obviously quite harrowing, and then the days that pass when you just have no idea what's going to happen. You know, we were um, she she has, she has a good friend who's um, a fairly accomplished doctor himself. And she and he was um, telling uh, her mother and the, their their former flatmate that you know no one's going to see this guy again. You know he he's done. So she has to get through those um, those initial days where she has that same thought. And then if I do return, will I be the same person? Will I be the person that she fell in love with? And she works incredibly hard for you know those those seven weeks, and then we manage to get back home again. And she has to, you know, help me be in the world. You know, here, here, Ricky. Let me teach you how to use the subway again. You know, that that sort of stuff. Hmm. And then after that, she has to, um, you know, go back to work, and then that all falls through as well. So just the 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 sheer the sheer emotional and physical exhaustion and demands that are placed upon a a stroke survivor or victim's loved ones. In this in this context is just just shattering. Hmm. So I think it's really important that not only do do we appreciate these people, but also that they they appreciate themselves. They're 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 doing incredible work, which you know, um, stroke victims, stroke survivors rely on and value so much. And it's not always easy for us to uh, to express that. Um, hmm. Yeah. Do you have any lasting? physical disabilities now or excuse the term brain issues now 
it's a funny thing. Um, I live now in what I call my new normal. So again, I've been I've been very fortunate just by just by sheer dumb luck. You know, Beth obviously worked incredibly hard. I I worked hard too, but I think it's really important to remember how much of what happens to us and how we emerge from this sort of, of an event is just down to pure dumb luck. And I've been very fortunate. Um, my sort of physical uh, deficiencies, if you will, uh, I, I still have I still have some some left side weakness. If I'm tired, uh, I'll have a reasonably pronounced limp. If I'm less tired, that's that's less of a problem. But that that that's quite easy to uh, that's quite easy to be to be aware of and, and measure and all that sort of thing. What's what's more difficult to really be able to monitor or, or have a handle on is the the mental or emotional side of things. In fact, I feel in that regard very similar. I mean, if something in particular happens, I'll, I'll be aware that maybe the prior Ricky, Ricky 1.0 as we call him, mm. may not have made that particular misstep. But is it, that, that, that's really noticeable. When I when I was released from the hospital, I was actually put into, or I was I was given the chance to take advantage of some some therapy, some some talk therapy essentially. Hmm. And before I entered that part of my care, one of the things that um, was done was I was I was issued a, a, a test uh, to see how my brain and my performance were were holding up after the stroke. Um, one of the tests that they do is they they ask you some fairly uh, extensive vocabulary questions, and apparently they can ascertain from how you do with your vocabulary questions basically where all sorts of your brain were beforehand. It's sort of a it's a thick slice essentially. They can mm. sort of get an idea of where you were before. So I, I was fortunate that before my stroke I was a, a, a high functioning individual. So, you know, I, I, I could fall off a little more and not be quite so noticeable to, to myself or, hmm. or others. But nevertheless, there was a falling off. And I remember this, um, this therapist I spoke to was very clear that there was a grieving process that I had to go through. You know, the, the, I, I was no longer the person I was before. And I had I, I had lost you know certain abilities you know like unfortunately I cannot uh, I cannot stay up all night um, <laughs> going through two hundred page documents with a fine tooth comb and and, and yelling at the <laughs> people about it and all that sort of thing that is that is not something I'm mm. able to do anymore so there we go that, Rick, that Ricky is gone <laughs> no yeah exactly I feel like I have had the opportunity to learn things mm. uh, as a result of the stroke you know. I'm not a huge fan of the stroke itself, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Mm. But um, I have come across—I've, uh, you know, I've had the good fortune to meet many stroke survivors over this uh, past decade or so. And um, you know, one is as incredible as the next. I, I often say there are—I find that I come across two types of stroke survivor. There's the ones who are doing better than I am, better than you know you second person are, are doing mm. um, and they're obviously inspirational and then there are the people who i meet who aren't doing so well and yet you know they're pushing on and they're trying to you know achieve 
what they can. They may even be, you know, quite furious about the whole damn thing, which is absolutely understandable. These people are also inspiring as well, and they, you know, they're they are kicking back, and they, you know, they want to live, and they and they and they want to, you know, they want to fight. So, mm. yeah, I've so I feel that I like a lot of stroke survivors I talk to have had a chance to find more empathy in my life. Mm. And that has helped me to become a more satisfied person, I suppose. Mm. In another review of your book online, I found this passage, which I don't know whether it's quoting you or whether it's the author um, interpreting your situation, but it says, there was too much time to think and reflect on the past before Beth and illness, a broken marriage, being an asshole, and the soulless <laughs> rut of a career. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty close to my words. <laughs> don't, we don't need to go into that, Ricky. <laughs> oh no, no. I, I'm happy to go into that. Essentially, uh, no, I, 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 sorry. If, Says if, it all, just, really, doesn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, my my, my, perspe- my perspective, my perspectives are different now, and um, the things that I, the things that I value, are are different now. Mm-hmm. The stroke was a real catalyst. Yes, exactly. It brings a lot of things into into focus. Mm. Um, you know, I, I talk about you know the idea of having in in an earlier life having been terrified of death. Mm. Um, now I realise that I think what I'm probably scared of, like anyone else, is pain and, and, and distress. And, and and what happened to me at the moment it was happening was was, was quite peaceful. So now I sort of just want to oh god. I feel like Ricky 1.0 wants to walk into the room and slap me around a bit. But you know, now I just want to have better connections with people and mm. you know, try and try and be a better guy. Yeah, well, that's an awful thing to say, Ricky. It's, <laughs> how, how dare you want to be a better person and be nice? <laughs> Ricky 1.0 does sound like an asshole, doesn't he? <laughs> but I understand that you've got this um, conversation within you. I think everyone does of, of different versions of themselves competing with one another, and um, a new Ricky has emerged, but old Ricky is still there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, new new Rick, new Ricky is he's he's really more aspirational than anything. I mean, he's, he's an ongoing project, mm. you know. I, I, I think I think that's the most accurate thing I can mm. I can really I can really say about that because to to say that I have now reach this new level of enlightenment is you know is it is, is is exactly the sort of thing that i'm trying to trying to avoid mm. sort of jumping to because i'm less comfortable being that guy focused on excelling mm. all of the time you know? yeah a few more years before it can be ricky the buddha <laughs> i look forward yeah, to I, talking I, I, to ricky the buddha soon it, um, I'll make sure he keeps you in his diet. Yeah, but though it does seem that at times, and I think you just said it before, that you kind of hate what happened and, and hate that the stroke happened to you, but at the same time there's some gratitude as well? Or you know. Yeah, I mean, all, all of these, so, so many of the things that have happened subsequently to that, the good things, you know, have been because of, of the stroke. Mm-hmm. I was in a position where I sort of, I, I tied myself into this life from which there there didn't seem to be. I mean, it was, it was a great life, but there wasn't really any other way to be. But because of what happened to me, you know, the decision was almost forced upon me to 
to move back to you know my uh, you know the, the the city of my childhood and re-engage with that, mm. which is something that I I'd let slide. You know, I I have I have time to uh, to spend with my family. In fact, I'm you know I, I'm so I'm I'm kind of the the primary caregiver um, mm. within our household and that sort of thing. And these are these are all things I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to do, mm. but they're not things that would have happened um, in another world. Mm. And that you survived, you uh, and Beth went on to have. A little son. Yes, that's right. Um, we have a we have a little boy now who is is three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, Whose name so is? This is this is Rudy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is. Yeah, he's a he's a wonderful little guy. Mm. And as I say, I'm his I'm his. I'm, you know, like Beth and I, you know, share all this sort of stuff, which isn't something I would necessarily have been able to do in the in the former life. Mm. And yeah, he brings a, he brings us a great deal of joy, and everything about him. Mm has come to pass in the years subsequent to this uh, this terrible event, which is uh, yeah, a beautiful little metaphor, mm. I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on, on Rory and, and um, yeah, maybe a, a long and happy life for you all. Um, Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. We're not finished yet, Ricky. Um, <laughs> Uh, just, just I was just taking some advice from Ricky 2.0 there and, and trying to be a, a nice guy in, in response to what you just said. Um, <laughs> so thanks, Ricky. Well, you're very good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm learning. Um, has have any specialists spoken to you, or have you read up on any of the links between stroke and vascular dementia? And if so, are you concerned about vascular dementia perhaps emerging at some point because of the stroke? It is something that. Um, it's sort of buried at the back of my mind a little bit, as I've mentioned previously in our in our conversations. Um, my father has a history of uh, high blood pressure and heart disease, and uh, he is now working through uh, his his own uh, um, issues, battles with with Alzheimer's. So yeah, I am I am I am cognizant of that, and I'm doing I do what I can. To sort of get my ducks in a row mm-hmm. now, do what I can now mm-hmm. to. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, in the sense, I, I try to do things to keep my brain active, and the sort of things that people suggest you do to maybe give yourself a better chance of avoiding that outcome. Mm-hmm. With diet and um, exercising the brain as much as possible. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I do. I do crosswords every day. Uh, obviously. I, I do a lot of writing. I'm trying to. I, I try to stay fit now. Mm. Um, so I think all of these things I do, uh, and I'm hoping that that gives me, you know, the best opportunities I can have, and I engage in a very uh, active way with my own with my own healthcare. Mm. Yep. So I'm doing what I can, and I think I've just got to be satisfied with that. Um, and then you know if 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 down the if down the road that turns out to be you know another challenge that we have to uh, we have to get through together, mm. um, you know that's where we'll be. And if anyone wants uh, good uh, dieting advice to stay as, as as fit and healthy as possible, go to the uh, British Heart Foundation website where you can uh, find all sorts of good nutritional food that can keep the heart and the brain healthy. Actually, I, I, I should say in, in that uh, in that context that the the amount of resources that the the, BH ha, the BHF has is, as my American friends would say, off the chain. Hmm. I know that since we've been sort of going through uh, the coronavirus the coronavirus times and all that sort of stuff, uh, the web pages that they've got on coronavirus and you and all that sort of stuff is has been I've found to be you know really helpful and. Uh, 
And yeah, it, it, it's good to know that there are people out there doing a lot of this thinking for you and knowing that those resources are out there. So, mm. you know, there's a lot of respect due to everyone at the BHF for all, all the stuff that they do in that regard. And we didn't even set up that plug, did we? <laughs> no, no, that was it's quite natural. Um, <laughs> oh, almost genuine. <laughs> it was seriously sincere. Um, so uh, you posted something on Twitter yesterday. I am stalking you here. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm, <laughs> be flattered I and scared. Not, I won't pretend I'm not concerned yeah. because, you know, like half of these tweets. <laughs> and it was a retweet from Denzel Washington and it said, mm. um, don't be so busy making a living that you forget to work on making a life. Can you tell me why that resonated with you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, firstly, I should, I should clarify that I, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that was the Denzel Washington. It may oh. have been a Denzel Washington. It was Denzel I'm, Washington I'm, with three followers. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it reminds me of, a, of the other of, of something I think you know John Lennon said. Um, Life is what happens to us when we're making other plans, you know. And you know, hopefully, someday down the road. Uh, in fact, I know that someday down the road, when I'm when I'm talking to Rue and trying to you know what trying to impart what wisdom I've managed to accrete along the way. Uh, I'm not going to say to him, you know what I wish? I wish I'd spent more days working till three in the morning on securitization documents. Now, I was very fortunate to be in a position to be able to do that. And of course, you know, we have to do what we have to do to get through our lives and pay our bills and all that sort of stuff. But um, it can be very easy, and I, find, I found it very easy to forget why I was doing those things. You know, I think, I think as younger people, or certainly I as a younger person was able to see to myself, I'm doing all this because it enables me to do and have nice things and live a more fulfilling life and, and connect with other people and all that sort of thing. But of course, if you run out of the time to do all of those things, that is its its own loss and everyone has to sort of make their own decisions as to what part of that works mm. best for them, what's more important for them. I've found that what I thought was important to me wasn't necessarily the right stuff, although it has given me, you know, lots of lots of its own opportunities. So mm. the examined life is much more worth living, I suppose mm. is what I'm saying. And you're now forty six, eight years on from your stroke. Yeah. What are your dreams for the future from here, Ricky? Well, uh, continuing to have the huge honour and privilege of uh, spending time with my, my wife and son is, is number one, uh, which, you know, is, is, which is certainly part of you know, my attempts to continue to, to live, a, live a healthier life. The act of writing my book, Stroke, has been hugely rewarding. In a, in a way, it's, in a, in, a, in a way, I've sort of reached the highlight of my writing career because I've met other stroke survivors, other people who care for stroke survivors and find that I've been able to have some sort of uh, connection with them and in some cases give them a chance to be more optimistic or whatever. Um, so being able, being able to do that, of course, is its, is its own drug in its own way. Mm. So, uh, you know, I want to continue to connect with people through my, through my writing. Uh, I've got a fair amount. I've, I've, I've built up a, a, a collection of 
of various fiction writing the you know that's been published in various places and i'd love to push forward and do some stuff with that that um can get an audience that hopefully you know will find a sense of a uh, human connection with that that would be a, a massive massive reward mm. are you also still wanting to open a distillery somewhere in the scottish highlands one day yeah yeah you know i am as it happens um Notwithstanding lockdown, uh, Beth and I managed to attend uh, a virtual tasting uh, at the Laphroaig Distillery mm. um, the other week, uh, which was which was tremendous fun. Mm. In the um, and in the aftermath of the stroke, I think uh, only a couple of years afterwards, twenty fourteen, mm. uh, I was able to do the the Isla Half Marathon. Mm. And for anyone who's not familiar with the island of Isla or the Isle of Isla. It's incredibly densely populated by fantastic distilleries. Hmm. So I got I got to run around there um, on this beautiful island and you know take some of the time when I wasn't running, having some incredible uh, whiskies and then on the return on the second half of the half marathon go up the western side of the uh, the island and get absolutely pelted by the uh, by the wind and rain mm. and yeah apparently that's all stuff that hugely appeals mm. to me yes. well the only reason i asked ricky is um i look forward to the invite when you've got it up and running oh yeah no we will we'll, we'll certainly be able to we'll, we'll certainly be able to use someone who can uh, who can record our, our podcast interviews and get the good word out so, yes yeah yes we shall we shall it's a deal we'll look forward great to it. done um <laughs> how has your relationship with alcohol changed yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I certainly drink a lot less. I've I've spoken with you about how um, when I had free time back in those uh, Ricky One Point days, I was very keen that that was my time, and I would I would get out of it whatever I possibly could, and you know that involved a a certain amount of over partying, mm. you know, like, like a good amount of drinking, you know. Mm. And that's that's really not something I, to that extent, that's not something I really, uh, I really particularly enjoy anymore. It's almost as if my my mind and body are now looking to find a slightly different equilibrium. So I, but I, I take pleasure from the ability to, for example, uh, you know, do an online whiskey tasting and actually get to enjoy it. Mm. You know, I've 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 I'm developing a very amateuristic. Uh, relationship with with wine as well mm. um so you've um you've become a connoisseur rather than a booze hound yeah well you know that, that, i think i think i think you nailed it, apart from the fact that uh, connoisseurs are kind of a high <laughs> bar as it happens um we, we we do this thing where we get sent a couple of bottles of wine each month and there's an online tasting for that as well mm. but it turns out the thing that interests me yes is the wine but the stories of the places where the wine comes from and the people who are making it and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I suppose uh, alcohol now is more of a sort of uh, a window into other things and places and people. So mm. I, it's, it's a different relationship now, mm. less nihilistic, if you will. Mm. Uh, well, on that note, Ricky, I'll um, raise my uh, glass of peppermint tea, my mug of peppermint Cheers. tea here uh, to you and your health and 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 that uh, of your family and thank you very much for talking with me here um, and I wish you all the very best. It's a huge pleasure to be able to get to work through these things with you both. Thanks a lot. Thanks, mate. 
Ricky might not have been here today or may not have recovered as well as he has if he and his partner Beth hadn't have acted fast in calling an ambulance. If you think you or someone near you is having a stroke, don't muck around, call 999. And remember the word fast to recognise the signs of a stroke. F for facial weakness. Can they smile? Has their mouth or eye drooped? A for arm weakness. Can they raise both arms? S for speech. Can they speak clearly? And can they understand what you're saying? T for time. It's time to call 999 immediately if you see any of these symptoms. Strokes cause around 36,000 deaths in the UK each year, and they are the single biggest cause of severe disability. Thanks to the public support, the BHF is funding vital research looking into how strokes occur and finding new treatments for stroke survivors. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at uk. You'll also find lots of useful information in the episode notes and on our website, bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes. You were in hospital and you were coming back to life and your memory was returning and you somehow struck up a nice uh, relationship with one of the nurses. Yeah, yes. There was a nurse there, this uh, tiny little little woman uh, who had spent a, a year or two in, um, in Glasgow. Mm. Now, of course, the, the great uh, Sean Connery was from a Fountain Bridge in Edinburgh, but I, I, I sort of uh, threw out my, uh, my, my Sean Connery impression. You know, it's the sort of thing that you, um, you maybe toss out to a, to a girl in a bar in Brooklyn and with a bit of luck find yourself uh, married with a kid a decade later. Mm. Uh, so it was something I had in my locker, if you mm. know. Mm. So I, you know, I, I gave it, you know, I said something like, Sean Goldfinger, do you expect me to talk? Um, and then this booming six foot former Mr. Universe emerged from this tiny nurse. And she, she went full, you know, no, Mr. Brown, I expect you to die. <laughs> Which, you know, if she'd said that a couple of days earlier, it would have been pretty disturbing. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it worked out. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> so you struck up a good um, rapport here with the little nurse. I hope so, yes. I, I I never really have much contact with any of any contact with any of these people, but I think of them I think of them fondly all the time. Yeah, of course. They um quite literally nursed you back to life. Exactly. <laughs>